One of the definitions for hospice is medical care for people with an anticipated life expectancy of six months or less when cure isn't an option and the focus shifts to symptom management and quality of life. In my opinion, the individuals who work in this area, to me, are the angels who walk amongst us. Having experienced hospice care for my parents, I know it takes special people to do this special work day in and day out. On this episode of the Executor Help Podcast, I'm going to have a conversation with a hospice angel. This is the Executor Help Podcast. Learn how to settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, go to davidede.com. Now here's your host, David Eady. With me today is Julie McFadden. She's also known as Hospice Nurse Julie. Get that right, Nurse Julie. (laughs) Julie, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to have you here on the show. Um, I think, you know, people such as yourself and what you do as hospice nurses, you guys are angels and you're going to special places for, and I say that based on having with my own eyes, seeing what hospice nurses do um, when it came to losing both my parents and in their finals day. So I want to thank you for being here and being on the show and sharing some of your knowledge and and making it easier for a, a lot of people to understand about the process of which probably a big shock to most people when it when it does start to happen. And there's people such as yourself there to help. I'm rambling on because I'm so <laughs> excited to, to have you here. So let's start off with what a hospice nurse is and how did you become one? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I I love I love talking about this stuff. So when, whenever someone's willing <laughs> to do it, I love it. So I really appreciate you having me on. Okay, so what is a hospice nurse? So a hospice nurse is a regular, regular nurse. We all have nursing degrees and it's just a type of nursing. And I got into it because I was an ICU nurse, which is a different type of nursing and an intensive care nurse uh, for many years uh, where a lot of people, or we were keeping a lot of people alive and they were, you know, and they eventually did die to me, like being an ICU nurse, not everyone dies in the ICU, but you do see a lot of suffering and a lot of trying to keep people alive in the ICU, which has its place, of course. There were also also many times where I thought, man, we should be talking about end of life here. And we weren't. No one was. So I, I should that say that me- I should say that I've been I've been in ICU because I had uh three years ago I had triple bypass surgery. So I was in mm-hmm. ICU. So then when you said, well, maybe they shouldn't be again, being uh, what you did being in the ICU nurse um area, that's also a special group of people too. So it's, it's a hard time and it's scary. It's very scary. It, yes. Yes. And there are definite, I don't want anyone to think that just because you're in the ICU, you're, you're going to die or you're dying. That's, that's definitely not always the case, right? right? But if you're there long enough as a nurse over the years, you do see people who you do see cases where it's like, okay, enough is enough, you know, death, not because I'm heartless, but because I have a heart and I know that we are causing more suffering than than helping this person. So that got me thinking about death and dying. And that got me interested in hospice nursing. And eventually I just took the plunge and just and just applied for hospice jobs. So I I'll try to keep it general as far as like what we do, because I could talk for like it's it's a lot of things of what we do as a hospice nurse, but I want to keep it exciting and not drag it on. So in general, hospice nurses are just regular nurses, but we deal with end of life. So we know a lot about 
different diseases and what the end of those different diseases may look like. We know a lot about what actively dying looks like, which is like the last phase of dying. We're really great at pain management. We're really great at symptom management in general. We specialize in end-of-life care, and it's amazing. I, I, I love it. I love it. So when it comes to death and end-of-life, in, in your opinion, why do you think people are afraid of death? Well, I think it's like human nature. You know, part of it is probably like evolution and us actually biologically wanting to stay alive uh, and and um, like our ego kind of keeps us alive in a, in a survivalist way, which is great. Uh, and I think a lot of it is the unknown. I mean, I always say I don't necessarily fear death, but I know as a human, if I got diagnosed with something terminal tomorrow, I would go through the human the human emotions. I would have anger and fear and sadness. And because it's the unknown. I mean, I still, I still really, I really don't fear death for the most part, but even little parts of me will come and go in and out of fear just because it's something none of us know. We don't, we don't know what happens. We can have an idea. We can have faith. We can believe certain things, but we don't. Is it because know. people are afraid to leave or is it the unknown? that they're, they're leaving behind loved ones. They're leaving behind, you know, their, their life. As they, yeah. I, I hear a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. They don't know where they're going. They don't want to leave their family. Uh, a lot of people say they're not afraid to actually die, but they're afraid of the dying process. You know, how am I going to die? Am I going to suffer? Will it be painful? So I think a, a lot of different things come into play. And I make videos about this all the time. And I get many different answers. But the three general ones I get are, I don't want to leave my family. I don't know what happens after we die. And I don't care about dying I, or that actual death once I'm dead. I care about the process of it. That's the part I fear. So I think all of it is normal. And I think it's great that we're even talking about it. I think that's the main thing we need to start doing. We don't have to even stop fearing it. I just think we need to start talking about it. Because I think that alone will help decrease the fear. Now, you said that you you made videos. So you taken your knowledge and answering questions and you've taken that to social media. Why did you feel it was something that you needed to do? Yeah, that was wild. <laughs> it's It's been a really wild ride. So about a year and a half ago, um, I always knew, I, I mean, I actually never really thought about taking it to social media, but about a year and a half ago, I had two close friends lose their, their parents died. And I was I was really involved with them on a with them, not the parents, on a on right. a kind of a daily basis, like educating them about things I know and things I say to my patients and just sort of rattling off all the things that I normally rattle off at work. And but I was doing it with friends. And their reactions were way different than what I expected. They were like fascinated and like, oh my God, I can't believe this isn't common knowledge. How do you know these things? How did you learn how to talk like this? How did you learn this stuff? You know, I was just surprised by their reactions. And then they encouraged me to start a podcast or start making social media videos. And um, so that's where the thought and the idea came from. And then I visited my nieces who are uh, 12 and 13 <laughs> and they were on TikTok. Experts. Experts. Yeah. Yeah. They were on TikTok and I was on TikTok just for them, just to like watch their videos and do videos with them and just be funny. And I started seeing people my age. I'm like, I'm 40 or I was, you know, 30, whatever at the time. And, right. uh, 
they were educating about things and I was learning stuff about space and gardening and random things. And I thought, maybe I'll put my videos on here. And David, four days later, four days later, it was, I had one viral video and then just started going viral after that. And I just think people were ready. It was like perfect time, like perfect time in space. It seemed like people were ready to hear it. And I started saying it. So roughly how many followers? So, so would you say that you're an influencer in the end of life space? (laughs) I guess I always say I'm an educator. I don't know if I'm influencing anybody. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, I don't, I, I think I'm just, I don't know. I think I, I would say I'm more of an educator, but um, yeah, I have. Um, and then it's stem. So I started on TikTok and then I went out to other platforms. Right. So it's been really fun. So roughly great. how many followers or, or how many people are you educating? Because um, you're clearly your message is resonating with a lot of people. Yeah, how many people you. is that roughly? Well, on TikTok, I have 1.2 million. So that's my, that's my largest following. And then on the other ones I have, you know, over 500,000, 200,000, 300,000. So maybe a couple million altogether. And I've been on your TikTok. And what's great about you is that it's just like, you're the nurse that I guess all, if anybody, like I said, I've been in ICU and I've been, you know, seeing my parents in hospice is that the way you just look into the camera and you just explain something. So if it's like you're at my bedside and talking to me and that I guess that's what draws people in. You're very you're you're very affable. You're you're just talking to someone. You're not you're not preaching to them. You're just letting them know that because these are a lot of the questions that you're answering and what you're um, helping people with are all the questions that people have because they never they don't know. I didn't know what it was like to be in, in an ICU. I didn't know you know, what it was like watching my parents uh, die in, in hospice from cancer. And these are just things and you're just helping people. So that's, it's a testament to you and what you're doing, which is amazing. So there's a special place you're going for sure. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I, I enjoy it. So thank you. With all the things that you're doing and educating people, what are some of the the not so great parts of being a, a hospice nurse? Oh man, I really have lucked out, I have to say, but I'll, uh, because, so the great the not so great things about being a hospice nurse or a nurse in general is a lot of like charting. So the things you have to chart and document to prove you're doing what you're doing. I always say that's like the worst part of my job, at least for me, I, I hate that part. I hate, you know, if you spend a couple hours with a patient, you might need to spend a couple hours charting what's going on with the patient, which I feel like is just not my bag. And I feel like most nurses probably think that charting is not fun. And then of course, if you work full time, which I think is generally very, very hard, if you have to work full time as a nurse, I have built my life so I don't have to, which is another thing I can talk about if you want me to. Uh, this is even before social media. So if you have to work full time as a nurse, that is just hard. It is just hard. It's like you don't have because you need, a, at least for me to, to really enjoy my work and be the best nurse I can be. I need time away. I cannot do it full time. I can't even, I love hospice nursing and even doing hospice nursing full time is really hard on me. It's, it's really straining. It's just a lot of emotional work, a lot of taxing effort. And it's just, I was going to ask you that it's, it's with all of the, the, the death around you all the time. And, you know, you've got in the hallways, you've got families, you know, handling grief different ways. And there's a lot of breakouts and I remember, you know, on the floor when, when my parents were from time to time, you just hear 
another a doctor going in and you'd hear the screams coming from the room and stuff like that. So it has to be hard on the psyche of an individual uh, who's working there every day. So what is it you do to relax or, or what's what are the other things that outside things that you do hobbies or something that takes you away or what clears your mind to make sure yes so let me give you a, a, a few things just just in case there are nurses working so one uh not not everyone can do this and i'll get to things that everyone can do but if you can as a nurse i would i would work per diem i would which means like you can if you work at a large enough hospital per diem, you could basically work almost as much as you want full, so almost full-time work, but because you're per diem, you can kind of come and go as you please. So you can work a lot, take off some days. You don't have as you have way more flexibility with your schedule. And there's something about that that feels so, so freeing and you have more time to take care of yourself. So that's the first thing I've done. And if you're, if you're someone who can do that, I would really, uh, I, I would say do it. Mm-hmm. Um, second, I work for a unionized hospital. I'm, I'm in California. There's a lot, a lot of nursing unions here. So that has helped immensely. That can't be for everybody because there's just some states that don't have a lot of unions. But if you are in a state that has nursing unions, I would work for one of those. And thirdly, just on my own thing, uh, um, how I relax is I need, everyone's different, but I need to be alone. So I I really rejuvenate by being alone. So um, I spend a lot of time outside. I spend a lot of time alone. Um, if, I, if I've had a really hard day where I just feel totally drained, um, I will watch The Office because I love <laughs> The Office. <laughs> and I'll eat like a Jersey Mike sub and like just lock myself in my room and watch The Office and Jersey Mike's and, sometime, and, and eat a Jersey Mike sub. And sometimes it's as simple as that. It's like, Today was just a day and I'm going to be done <laughs> and I'm going to watch the office and eat food. So, so Michael and Dwight do it for you. Yes, they oh, do it for okay. me. Oh my God. And then, and then just on my days off and stuff, I love being outside. I love being alone and I, I spend time with friends and stuff too. But like, if I'm really feeling like my tank is empty, I need to be outside and I need to be alone. And that's what I have found that works for me. Everyone's thing is going to be different, but but Those it, are my two. But it's things. important that you find something because of mm-hmm. the, the job that you've chosen. And to me, you know, going through what I've been through and in here in Canada, going through the, the hospital system, the 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 nurses, you're not paid enough. They're just yeah. you're just not paid enough for what you're doing, especially in the specialized areas where you where you're at uh and have been, it's you're just not paid enough. And and for that very reason, what you have to to put up with. What you have to, what you see, what you feel, um, and you know, and every case is different, but the end result is someone's going to pass away, and there's going to be crying, there's going to be screaming, there's going to be all of that going on, and uh, the I think that the healthcare, you know, we're saying over and over again, but you just not paid enough. One of your TikTok videos, you were talking about end of life visioning. What is what is that? End of life end of life visioning is something that happens in I would almost use the word majority. I wish I could give you a percentage, but, uh, but I can't without just making one up. <laughs> so I don't want to make one up, <laughs> but um, I have like read some things, but it's not, it's not for certain. So I'm, I'll just say the majority. So majority of people at the end of life will start seeing uh, dead relatives if they like them. So relatives they like <laughs> and love, right. you know, dead relatives, dead friends, uh, 
dead neighbors, dead pets, um, anyone that is meaningful to them, they will, they will be, they will start seeing them physically. And, and this isn't like a confusion, paranoia, they don't know what's going on type of thing. This is like most people, every once in a while, they are confused, but most people are alert and oriented and kind of just as surprised as everybody else is. And sometimes even afraid to tell you because they know it sounds so crazy that their parents came to them last night at their bed said they're coming to them, they're coming to get them soon, and now they feel really comforted. So so the main thing about visioning is that it's someone, usually someone you know, usually, every once in a while, it's like a spirit or an angel or something like that, but usually someone you know, and it's and it's always comforting. So whether the person is confused or not, which they don't, they usually aren't, but even if the patient is confused, it's not like a paranoia thing because there are different psychoses and different deliriums and things that can happen sometimes mm-hmm. at the end of life where someone seeing somebody and it's scaring them, right? That's not, that's not a vision. That's not visioning. Visioning is specific. Usually someone they know and usually very comforting. And it usually happens about three weeks to a month before someone dies. So that's like a marker as a hospice nurse. When I hear a patient of mine saying that they saw their dad last night or their dad came to them, I think to myself, okay, you probably have about a month left. And they usually die within, within, within the month. Having you say that now, it makes me think of my mom and dad. My mom went first and she did talk about, and now when you, it just triggered me that she talked about how she saw her mother. And you're right, it did make her feel comforted. And I remember my dad talking about uh, his sister and um, I can't remember, there was one other relative he had mentioned too during that time because uh, he passed away about 18 months after her. But they both now that I'm thinking because we spent all our, our time at the hospitals with them that they these things would come up and I'm mm-hmm. specifically with my mother she did yeah. say that that's interesting yeah can you tell me about a time when a patient and a family member disagreed over care and a plan and how it was resolved because you get to see a lot of things going on oh, yeah yeah. So it's, <laughs> well, it's always like, Ooh, this is going to be a while, which is, which is okay. Right. I, sometimes I'm like, I'm glad I'm here. Cause I, I'm glad I'm happening now while I'm here because at least we can kind of hopefully get it resolved. So a lot of times it's the, the family member, the family member who is there caring for the patient, they have an idea of what, what's happening. Cause they know what's going on. Right. And they've been there the whole time. And then there's the, 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 the son or daughter who's been out of town, who lives out of town and is now coming in because they've heard mom and dad are more sick or they're declining or whatever it is. So then they come in, what's going on? You know, like, what do you, what do you mean? What's that? You know, so they are usually, and this is just one scenario, but they're a little more like hospice or like, we're not going to give them IV fluids um, or we're not going to stop, stop, you know, we're not going to continue treatment. What do you mean? We don't, they don't have to eat, you know, cause, and the other sibling is like, I, you know, like I've been here the whole time. I know what's going on. I know what's best for mom and dad and mom and dad have been telling me they don't want to, and I'm respecting their wishes, you know? So that's usually the typical argument and how I, how I deal with that. Um, one, if one, we have a whole hospice team, so we could always call in the social worker if we needed to, but if I'm right there and I kind of can see the, the typical dynamic, I usually just sit everybody down and discuss end of life in general and discuss what the person has said they wanted, the patient themselves. And at the end of the day, I say, listen, at the end of the day, everyone can agree we don't want 
your loved one to suffer. That's what everyone wants. That's what you want. That's what you want. No one wants their, their mother or dad or whoever it is to be suffering. So if that's the goal, and they usually say yes, here is, here's what we need to do, right? And then usually they agree and they kind of come together. It's just sort of in the heat of the moment, they get a little caught up. And if you're not used, if you're not used to hearing end of life information, which even as an ICU nurse, like as an ICU nurse, I never knew you weren't supposed to give IV hydration to a dying person. I did not know that. I would have given tons of fluid to a, to a dying patient, not knowing. Right. IV fluid, that is, not drinking fluid. Right. But as a hospice nurse, that's common knowledge. And that's just not common knowledge to the rest of the world. You know, so hearing it for the first time could be a little jarring. Um, anyway, so I usually just try to set everybody down and get on the same page. And the page is usually, we don't want our loved one to suffer, right? That's that's ultimately what everybody wants. It's and you're saying that and it's it sounds like you were sitting you like you were you were you were you were with, with my family. We, we mm -hmm. went through it twice and we have some yeah. characters who will remain nameless in my family who <laughs> who yes they didn't have to fly in but they were in the area and we went through what what exactly what you're doing and it's 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 and we did come down to the exact same thing what is going to be best for mom what's the best yes. for dad um that's so they don't suffer yeah yes uh, i don't know whether it be you know the hospice care or or the estate or in dealing with it you you truly find out about uh, uh, someone's character and who they are and and it kind of changes people or or it changes in my eyes who they are so this is why i think it's so important and i'm sure you would agree with this that people get their affairs in order and say what they want before it all goes down. So then their children or their siblings or their husband or wife don't have to decide because that's where, you know, when I sit, when I sit families down and say, look, this is what your mom wrote down. You know, your mom says she wants that, 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 then they can't really even, they can be upset about it, but it's not anyone's fault. Right. It's like, we need to respect what mom wants. That's why it's so important for everyone to make it clear what they want. And, th and this is like no shame to people who haven't, right? It's okay. I get it. But that's like, that's like my one mission is like to get people to know that it's so important to get things outlined on what you want, because that takes a load off the family, right? If a family dynamic wasn't great anyway, <laughs> which so many family dynamics aren't, hello, you know, my family too. Uh, add some stress in there, add some death and dying in there. It's not going to be, it's not easy. It's, it's, it, well, that's where I keep saying it. It's reason why there should be conversations that matter. A lot of times the, if it's the parents or the, the dying loved one who has, you know, an estate or, you know, stuff behind, they, they, they are reluctant to have those conversations with the children because they know who they're dealing with um, yes. and they stay away from it. So what ends up happening is, is you get to see all the actors playing out on this great stage. Um, I'll use my family as an example. There's one particular individual who just put on a show. Other siblings knew there was gonna a show was coming and they put on that show. But if yes. my parents would have had the conversation with us in advance, we could have stayed away from the, 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 the one act play that was going on. So yeah. what are going to do? Again, it changes people. And that's why I advocate. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I have talking to people such as yourself to come in from a different angle. You see it frontline, how it's going to go down. 
And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to go down that way. If you just take some simple steps, get your fares, like you said, get your fares in order. Yeah, because then there could be the one person show, but no one has to, like you said, no one has to watch or listen because it's already done. You know, like the thing they can, they can, the people can still <laughs> do the one man show, but it's not going to matter because yeah. the, it's already, it's already written there in you plain pretty, English. You pretty much can just it. get up and walk out and let the show, there's no, there's no yeah. audience, but there's always yeah. going to be some people that's going to put on the audience. Just to switch gears a little bit, I uh, one of your other TikTok videos, you talked about the, your belief in the afterlife. Do you have a story that you want to share and why do you believe in the after? there's an afterlife? Yes, I can share a story. The whole belief in the afterlife, uh, that actually has come just from who I am, I think, as a human in general, even before being a hospice nurse. I've always been, even as a young, young girl, I've been like a seeker, someone, I didn't grow up in a religious home or anything. I, I, I and my belief in an afterlife, by the way, has nothing to do with religion. So, and I would never push my belief of an afterlife on anyone. This is just my belief and uh, I would never Absolutely. push it on anyone. But um, yeah, I've always just been a seeker. I feel like I've just had a, many spiritual experiences growing up that have made me believe that. Um, and believe that I'm going to a place that I've always once that I've that I've once known. You know, I think I'm going to die and wake up in a place that will feel more like home than this place ever has. And that, and I've always just believed that. Oddly enough, <laughs> I, don't, oddly. I don't even it's, know. It's... I don't even know how. I mean, I just sort of had experiences, and I'm like, this is this is this is it. But it, but hospice has helped me. I mean, to me, death is completely sacred. I mean, watching people die the grief is removed from me because they're not my loved ones, right? They're my patients who I care for, but I don't believe death is the worst possible thing. So to watch someone die to me, especially peacefully and naturally, is a sacred thing that I get to watch. To me, it's like birth. It feels like birth. It, it, it feels like, wow, they're on like the breath of angels. I feel like we're so close to this place. Like I said, that I call home when someone is dying and the whole room kind of fills with it. I did have one experience that I haven't had since and never had before. I didn't know it's called a shared death experience. I didn't know it was called that. I only know that because I shared it on social media and then someone told me, hey, there's a whole book about that. It's called oh. A Shared Death Experience. Yeah. And I actually, the I, I talked to the author who wrote the book and everything. Uh, um, but um, yeah, so it was a patient of mine who I was, I was really close with. He's one of my favorite patients. Not that I have favorites, but... Um, you do. Yeah, but <laughs> I do. Uh, he was younger. He didn't have much family. So we were just really, really involved with this guy. And him and I had like so many conversations up until he died about death and life and what he believes and what's going to happen. And you don't always get a chance to do that with patients. They don't always want to go there. But he really did. So uh, it was just really, it was just in a really amazing relationship. And I was so grateful to meet him. And um, when he was dying, he was in the actively dying phase, which is the last few, you know, few hours to a few days before death. Um, I was visiting him daily and we had a continuous care nurse in the home caring for him continuously. And I would visit every day and kind of check on him. And the last day I was there, I could tell like for sure he was going to die that day. I could just tell by how he was breathing. He was fully unconscious. Uh, I could tell he was going to die that day. So I said my goodbyes like quietly in my head in his home. And I told the continuous care nurse, you know, text me when he dies. I'm pretty sure he's going to die today. And um, yeah, I went to my car and I was thinking about him some more. I didn't necessarily feel super sad. I was just more like, man, I hope you have a great journey. Like, I'm so grateful to have met you. And I'm thinking this in my head. And then suddenly I could hear his voice in my head and he was 
it was like I could hear his voice and feel feelings suddenly. It was kind of like I was transported somewhere else for lack of a, I can't, it's really hard to explain, but to right. try to explain it, it's like that. And I could hear him saying to me, oh my gosh, Julie, oh my gosh, Julie, if I only would have known, if I only would have known, like real excited, like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And he wouldn't really finish his sentences. It would be, it was like, he was excited. I can't believe this. If I only would have known, if I only would have known. And he made me feel so like excited and peaceful and like exuberant and like free, like the best, most amazing feeling you can imagine. Right. And the, the, what he was kind of giving me was that like, if I only would have known how good this was going to be, I would never have worried about it. I would have never have talked. I wouldn't have ever had a second thought about it. This is amazing. He didn't say those exact words, but that's the feeling he gave me. He just right, kept going, right. oh my gosh, Julie. Oh my gosh, Julie. Oh my gosh, Julie. If I only would have known, if I only would have known. And I was weeping in my car because the feeling was so intense and I was so transformed. I didn't even know what was going on until it was done, right? So then probably 30 seconds later, it was like he was gone. And I sat in my car kind of like shell-shocked, like, what the hell was that, <laughs> you know? Wow. And like wiping away tears and feeling like happy and like, whoa. And right then I got a text from the nurse inside saying so-and-so just died. And I thought, I know, because I think he just showed me mm -hmm. what, what was happening. And I didn't say that, of course, and I didn't tell anybody. I just sort of drove away and went to my next patient and... And I did end up calling my best friend later that day, like a couple hours later, being like, what? Listen to what just happened to me. Could this be like, uh, you know, what's going on? And that's it. And I haven't really, I didn't really speak about it for years. And then um, the social media thing started and people kept asking me why I wasn't afraid to die. And that was one of the main reasons. And I just, uh, so I finally just told people, I finally just told everybody. Yeah. <laughs> 1.2 million people. And uh it's embarrassing. You know, it's hard to share because I do really work on a science level, right? Like I'm not mm -hmm. here to try to convince people there's an afterlife, but when things like that happen to you, it's pretty uh, transformative. So it's, it's funny. You should say that in a recent episode, I just uh, I taped uh, people could listen to is um, uh, her name is Tammy Tyree and her, she was in a very bad car accident. Her husband passed away and she ended up writing the book, which was called Do Dead Men Still Snore? And she talked about how he came back to her and helped her write the book to wow. probably like what your friend uh, talked about, how good it was. But he wanted to let people know, you know, how things should be. Don't be sad at the funeral, how to uh, celebrate the, the your life. And it's all a whole set of, and her, her book's called uh, uh, Do Dead Men Still Snore? And she talks about their life together. So he stayed around long enough to help her write the book. And then he comes back from time to time, but he was able to to go forward. So what you're saying is not odd at all. It's it's happening to other people. And and, yeah. um, and she, she, she clearly remembers being in the ICU, knowing that he had passed, but she still could hear him snore. So, wow. so that, you know, it's brought her great comfort and, and, and she was able to write the book. So your, your story of, of what you went through, it, it, 
it bears out that this is happening. So some people may not believe it. And you, you don't know if, well, as you said, you're coming from a scientific background, but there is clearly that, uh, that feeling out there. Interesting. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I've had, I've had several things like that, maybe not with someone dying, but like that feeling of, oh, there's something else, multiple, multiple times throughout my whole life, even before hospice nursing, right? So that's where my belief in an afterlife and not fearing death comes from. So what are some of the most common and why did you feel it was important to talk about each one of the diseases and how people pass away. I think it's just such, no one talks about what diseases, what, what it'll look like to die from X. Right. And every, and yes, everyone is different. I, it, there is nuance, but in general, especially on hospice, you know, we see a lot of people with different types of cancers and, and every different type of cancer can look different. So like people with glioblastomas, which is a, a tumor in the brain, uh, people with pancreatic cancer, what were, what will their death look like? In the sense of once you get to the actively dying phase, which lasts a few hours to a few days, almost everyone looks the same, same symptoms, right? Or not symptoms, I'm sorry. Same, it looks, death looks the same, okay, but yeah. the symptoms prior to that can look different. Glioblastomas, you can have more symptoms than others, unfortunately. There, there can be pain, there can be seizures, there can be a functional and mental decline and changes. Pancreatic cancer, depending on where it is, um, it, it can go to the liver. So then you have some symptoms with that, with um, confusion and fluid and just different. And, and it might sound scary, like, I don't want to know. But to me, preparing someone and knowing like, hey, this is normal. And here's what we can do about it. Because in hospice, we are experts at managing symptoms. Um, we are experts at, at helping you along your end of life journey so you can live out your best life until you die. Yeah. Um, so I think, I just think one, knowledge one of is the, power. One, one of the ones you also mentioned was ALS. And I yeah. have a friend that's uh, going through that right now. And and I have I've had other clients and other friends that have been through it, and I I know the journey that they're headed, and it's it's um, when you had brought that up and talked about that, it it triggered me as well. Is that this is not gonna? It's to me, it's I mean, my parents I lost them both to cancer, but ALS mm -hmm. is like a whole different animal in terms of the journey to get you to the end is 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 heartbreaking. Yes. ALS to me, that is actually, so I hate, I hate talking about, you know, certain, I, I'm trying to educate to pe make people less scared. Right. And there are certain diseases that I'm just like, oof, but you know, it's just like, they, it's hard. I, I'm still going to talk about it, but there it's hard. Right. And, and ALS is one of them. There's no getting around that one. Glioblastomas too, tumors in the brain. There's no getting around it. It's just hard it's just hard. And, uh, that's it. I mean, we can, we can, the main thing I always say with ALS is if you can learn how to speak, uh, they give you these smart boards. I don't know wh right. what you, where your friend's at, but they give you these smart boards where you can learn how to communicate with your eyes, right. uh, which again is horrific. And I know one should have to do that, but my, I always say, if you can learn that smart board easy or, or, or early earlier, yeah, yes, early, because then you can communicate, right? Otherwise you won't be able to, which is even, which is even harder. But yeah, there's just certain diseases out there that it's like, oof. 
<laughs> but you got to talk about them still because um, they're there and yeah. people are dealing with it. That's it, I, you, you. You got me. I don't know. It's it, the ALS. The can They're all bad, but uh, ALS that it, it always throws me. Um, I know. What are some of the ways that family members can make it easier on a dying person? Like I talked earlier about with my family, we we always got we've got one bad actor that they always want to make it about them. And you can always see that there's always going to be people don't know how to to I'm not going to say know how to behave, but they don't know how to act in in probably the most difficult trying time of a family's existence because the the dynamics is going to of the family is going to change. Yes. forever and yes. it's, and you don't expect that because you know everybody gets along at christmas and we get together but this is something and i try to explain that to people you know that's why i say get your wares and um, affairs in order because when you're there at the hospice or you're there at, and in in the hospital this is going to change who you are as a group forever there's yeah. no going back so what do you you know, how would you, you know, suggest family members act around a dying person? Because some people are, you know, just be there. And then there's other people that are going to be, you know, drape themselves over the, over the bed and be crying. It's gonna, I'm sure you've seen it all. Just by yeah. your, your reaction. Yes, you've seen it all. I know. Well, I'm trying to think like, it's, it's hard. I mean, family, family dynamics is hard and, and dying. So like, people are going to die how they lived, right? Like you're not, just because you're dying doesn't mean you're going to suddenly turn into a saint and be this great person, right? So like right. even the dying person might be a jerk <laughs> sometimes, right? Or be who, difficult. Who could have spawned more with. jerks? So we've got like, a room full of jerks. You're right. Like if someone's really neurotic in their life, they're going to be really neurotic in death. And that can be hard to deal with as a family member if you're caring for them, right? So- yeah. So, okay, in general, and this is just a general statement because and families are the same way. Family dynamics are not just going to be easy during a stressful time, right? Even if you have a great family dynamic already, but most people don't. So it's going to be strained. So what I try to say is one, if the person is on hospice or even if they're in the hospital, there are teams of people literally paid to be there to help with stuff like that. So social workers in general, um, can help with family meetings and family dynamics. Like if there is, all you have to do is speak up. So utilize the things that are given to you that are always underutilized. Social workers, I mean, they're, they're super busy. They work really hard, but I think most people don't know that they can ask for that. And so if there's a bunch of issues going on, I think people should ask for a family meeting on, and how can we go, how can we help this uh, be the best, like the most functional it can be, right? Um, and just show up, right? So that's going to be a simple thing. Just just be there. Just show up if you can. And I think people who are dying want to talk about the elephant in the room. Everyone's different. But in general, I think when you, when you can be the person who is either acting the same or even talking about them, like don't talk about them like they're not there. You know, talk about them like they can hear you and like that they are there. And especially if they're awake and talking to you, definitely talk to them. Right. I think the thing I've learned with talking to dying people is that they are relieved when they see that they can talk about their own death and you can hold space and just listen to them. The worst thing you can do is try to be like, don't say that, you know, don't, don't say, don't say that you're not dying. You're going to be fine. We're going to beat this or whatever it is. Right? right. No, like if anything, don't say anything and just listen. 
and just listen. In general, if the family can, I always say it's all hands on deck. That means we all need to help each other. Like, especially if you're home hospice and you're doing most of the care for the, for the person that you love, there needs to be multiple people helping you. So if there is a family of multiple people, it's an all hands on deck kind of time and everyone needs to help, whether that's physically buying groceries, getting coffee, giving someone a break so they can go get food and you can take care of somebody, whatever it is, picking up medications. It's just a time to, if you can, come together. Is that kind of like at the time we were taping this, just a couple of days ago, it was mentioned that uh, your former president, uh, Jimmy Carter, has now gone into hospice. So he's decided not to be at home. He's decided not to be at in the hospital. He's done, decided to have hospice at home. So what does that look like? Yeah, so most hospices, picture. I don't know how Canada is, but in America, most hospices are in, you go to hospice in your home. And that means that 80% of the work falls on the family. Hospice does not provide 24-hour care. So the bulk of the work falls on the family, which is crazy, <laughs> crazy sure. and hard. I don't, I don't agree with that, but that's where we are in, med that's per Medicare guidelines. And Medicare is our boss for right. hospice. They pay for it all. They organize it all. And so um, with if one sibling's doing it all, but there's eight siblings, that's not going to work. You know, that's going to cause a bunch of resentment. That's not like one person can't do it all. So in those cases, that's when I try to have family meetings or I talk to the one sibling who is doing it all. And I say, hey, how what's your dynamic with your with your siblings? Can you talk to them? Can you say, hey, this the hospice nurse said this is all hands on deck. We need you here now. And if they say, yes, I can talk to them. It's all good. They'll they'll show up. And great. If they say, oh, no, I can't. They're working. They're this. They're da, 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 no, da. they're jerks. I've never liked them before. Yeah. And I'm like, OK. Yeah. I'm like, we're going to get a family meeting going uh, because you can't do this alone. You know, like that's end of story. Like, you just can't do it alone. And we can't help you. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can really do. Yeah. So that's what we try to do anyway. And it can be messy. I mean, there's nuance. There's no there. There's nuance and everyone's different. In general, I just try to always say, like, utilize what you have, right? There are resources to at least help with getting things moving. So yeah. what do you say to the person who's afraid of dying? Um, I, people say that all the time. And I I usually start with, that's that's normal. That's normal. Like, I think, I think we need to, that's so normal that you fear that. That right there can maybe not even decrease it, but at least they've said it, right? Like that's so normally that you feel that. And the fact that you even, that you even said that to me, you are like beyond what most people can even do. So the fact that you can verbalize that you're, you're, you're ahead of everybody, like, good job. You know what I mean? Like, let's start there. I think naming the beast is great. What are you afraid of that? Like just, just, just getting them to discuss it. Right. And even talk about it. And a lot of times they're afraid of like, what am I going to feel like? What am I, what can you do about this? I'm in a lot of pain. I don't feel like this, you know, whatever it is. And a lot of times we do have answers as hospice nurses. Like people get, I, that's why I love my job. You can see the relief on people's faces who say, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid the pain's not going away. I'm afraid because I'm not eating. I'm afraid because I'm sleeping all the time. And then I can sit there and tell them that it's your body is literally born. Um, you know, uh, uh, made to survive birth for the most part, and it's made to die. And right now you are in your end of life journey and the body knows it because biologically we are built to do it. 
So that's why you're sleeping all the time. That's why you're not eating. That's why you're not thirsty. Your body is actually taking care of you and preparing itself. We will help you with the pain. We will, if you have it, we will help you with whatever symptoms they're afraid of, right? We're going to be here every step of the way as you're on this journey. And, and even just hearing some sort of certainty there of like, oh, this is normal. It usually helps. You can see the relief. So for people who are fearing it, I always just say, get that out. Talk about it. Talk about the elephant in the room. And for families and family and friends who are around that, be the one that will just listen and not try to make them feel better, right? Let them feel the things. Or make it about about you. Yeah. Or don't yes, 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 yes. Which or make it about a lot you. as well too. People are making it about them. Yeah. It's it, it's uh it, it is a, a rough, rough time. I I I I can't explain it anymore. Unless you've been through it, it's 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 a hard time. Julie, how can people follow you on social media, get educated? and how you can continue to help uh, people? Well, luckily I am, it's pretty easy. It's Hospice Nurse Julie across all everything. So Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and then TikTok if you're if you're uh, on TikTok. So just look up Hospice Nurse Julie and I'll pop up. Julie McFadden, AKA Hospice Nurse Julie. I can't say it enough because having to know what people like you do, you truly are angels. Whatever you don't believe in or do believe in, mm-hmm. your angels and what you do and how helping people because it's a it's a tough thing, it's a tough job. And I thank you so much for being on the show with us. Maybe we'll have you back. Up. Not maybe. I'd like to have you back on <laughs> in the future and have some more conversations because you're so interesting and thank you're you. so passionate about helping others. And we need more of that in in the world today for helping others. So uh, I thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. Same. I appreciate you listening to me. <laughs> you have so much to say. I, I, could, I could listen <laughs> for hours, but uh, we can't go for hours. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To catch up with all the latest from me, go to davideady.com. There you can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time.